another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it is, is most of the time the case for my personal mobile studio, which is my 2006 Jetta Diesel TDI, as I make my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. So if you hear background noise, you hear sirens, or you hear the occasional cell phone ring, That's because the guy that does this podcast does it from a moving vehicle. If this is your first show, that might be news to you. If this is your uh, uh, 122nd show, because you've been with me since the very beginning, then uh, it's not news to you, and you're used to it by now. And uh, to those of you that stuck with me through my first, I'd say about... 30 episodes where the background noise is much worse because my equipment wasn't as good. Thank you for sticking with me, and I appreciate you. Uh, folks, today we're going to take a spin off of what we've been talking about. We did a lot on gardening. Uh, you know, we did a lot on uh, on pandemic yesterday and flu and disease and things like that, and it's time for a change-up. Uh, we did some listener feedback shows recently as well where I answered questions that came in. Today we're going to spin on over. We're going to talk about the state of the economy. Now, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, folks, but I would like to explain, and this is not just about the economy, this is about all the threats that I discuss. Sometimes I talk more about the threat, sometimes I talk more about the prevention of the threat, sometimes I talk more about the preps, right? And I move around with all these things, but there's a reason. You can't fight a battle in which you do not know your enemy. And in the battle of modern survivalism, the threats are the enemy. You must understand the threat, and you don't have to understand it like a college professor. In fact, it's probably better that you do not. But you have to understand it. You have to be informed about the most recent things that it's doing. In other words, if this was an army thing, and we're saying, okay, well, there's an opposing force over there. You have 2,000 men that are equipped this way and trained this way, and that opposing force is an opposing force of 500 men. This is what their encampment looks like. Now, your job is to go in there and take them over. If you are intelligent as a commander, your first question is, how old is this intelligence? That says there's only 500 defenders, this is their level of training, this is their level of equipment, etc. Because if that intelligence is more than a few hours old, it may not be valid. Now, if that intelligence is two weeks old on the battlefield, it absolutely is invalid, and it's the way that you get men killed in battle. Well, when it comes to things like the economy, if you don't stay abreast of the most current situation of the threat, and at least pay attention to it once in a while, then you're looking at old battlefield intelligence, and you're making decisions and actions based on information you've assumed to be true because it was at one time. All right? So, that's why I do this. That's why I take the time to dissect some of these threats. Do things like I did with the show yesterday where I really kind of dissected not just the pandemic flu threat, but the entire concept of disease and spreading and how it might not just threaten humans, but threaten animal life 
and that if an animal pandemic happened, it could be as devastating to the planet as a human pandemic, or more so. Something as simple as a bee, the bees. If the bees experience, you know, it seems like the bees are having a disease epidemic, what happens if it becomes a global pandemic of pollinating insects? Those type of things. That's why I do that. So hopefully I can keep you entertained a little bit as I talk about this stuff with the economy and what's going on. Let me just open with what our biggest problem is in this country right now. From a government that has now committed itself to spending more money, and more money, and more money, and more money, has basically laid down a philosophy. And, and, And George Bush has done this, and Barack Obama's embraced it, and... You know, it's a it's a big tenant of the Democrats, and frankly, while they talked a good game, it was a big tenant of the Republicans while they were in power. Whenever there's, the pro- there's a problem, we'll just spend and grow our way out of it. All right. The only difference between the two sides, philosophically, in the way they spoke, is where the money to do so came from. But the reality is, they're spending so much money that there is no way to tax us into a situation where the taxes equal the outgoing. It's that 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 ship has sailed. And it sailed to the tune of a $1.2 trillion deficit this year. And I think a lot of people confuse the deficit with the budget. But this year, we're going to have a deficit of $1.2 trillion. That's after we take all the money that you pay, all the money that I pay, all the money that the rich people pay in taxes, all the money that the middle-income people pay in taxes, all the money that the poor people pay in taxes, all the taxes that you pay on a gallon of gas or a bottle of beer or a pack of cigarettes, all the taxes combined across this nation that go into the coffers of the federal government, put all that money in there, look at all that money that they spend, that's the shortfall. That's the money they don't have. So that's like, just like in your household, if instead of $1.2 trillion, it was $1.2,000 or $1,200. At the end of every month, or the end of every, yeah, the end of every month, you're short one point. Two thousand or twelve hundred bucks, and you just fire your Mastercard up, and you cover the difference. And then the next month comes, and you fire it up, and you cover it again. You fire it up, and you cover it again. And the entire time that this was going on, if there was any raise in income, you found new places to spend it. Never addressed the deficit. In fact, continued to grow it. So it was twelve hundred this month, fourteen hundred next month, sixteen hundred the following month. And you kept doing it. You say, how long could you run a household that way? And the answer is not very long. When you're the government, you can do things that other people cannot. You can phone up the Federal Reserve and say, print me a trillion dollars, and they'll do it. But even in that situation, there's a point at which the system destroys itself. There's a point at which you become dependent on input from outside of your contained system. And in our situation, that's a Federal Reserve. They can only print so much money. Don't believe we, we cannot print our way out of this problem. We can't just issue more dollars. If you want to learn more about that, go Google the Weimar Republic and see what happened to Germany when they just kept printing money. All right. So the only way that we can make our printing have any sense in its semblance in reality is to have other nations invest portions of their economy into ours. That's the portion of our debt that is foreign. Okay, that's our foreign national debt. The money that we owe to countries like Great Britain, France, China, Japan. 
right? These governments and wealthy individuals, very, very wealthy individuals from around the world that come in and buy U.S. Treasury notes. Well, the biggest investor this country's had in the past 10 years has been China. China has pumped in trillions of dollars into our economy, quite honestly. And, and you, you would look at the balance sheet and go, it's not trillions, but it is. It's trillions because of what people do not see. It's not just the, 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 the hundreds and hundreds of millions that have been pumped in, in indirectly. It's the money that's pumped in indirectly all right, by this circulatory system that they've tried to create for themselves. So what they do is they loan the money to us, right? Okay? And there's a certain level of interest, and it's a moderate interest rate. But that money gives this nation tremendous spending power. That fuels our economy, and it fuels consumer purchases, retail purchases. Our primary source of retail consumer-grade goods today in this country? China. So China manufactures the product, right, at their currency rate, which is like seven... You know, one-seventh of our currency rate. It creates an arbitrage situation. So they build the product for Chinese money. They sell it for American money, which we pay for which money we borrowed from them, and we then pay back. And as our debt grows, and the money that we owe them grows, the input back to them grows at the same time at a higher rate. In other words, they're willing to take our crappy 1% or half percent to loan us money because they know they fuel our economy, and it's not the same amount of money coming back. There's much more money going out to China than comes in from China right now. But something's happened. Retail is down. Now, how far is retail down? It's down twice what was expected by forecasters in November. They said retail's going to suck. The stock market went down. Everybody freaked out. People started laying people off. Some of the stores began to close. People went and ran crazy freaking sales. 70% off. Buy one, get one free. Get two free. Whatever it was, clear the inventory. Get it off the shelves. Let's go. Let's run. We've got to solve this problem by getting people to spend money. And then the numbers were down double. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to China? This is this is the stuff that, like, all this stuff's in the news, but no one's piecing it together for you. So that's my job here. What it means is that China now looks at the situation and goes, all these stores over in America are clearing their shelves of inventory. All right, They're selling at tremendous discounts. We sell to them. We know what they're selling for. They're breaking even. They're losing money. They know they can run the numbers. Very, very astute mathematically, the Chinese business people are. Very astute. They understand the numbers game well. It's not just stamp out crap and sell it for whatever. They look at supply side. So they see our shelves just declining in inventory. In other words, there's less crap on the shelves today than there was two months ago, even though sales are down. Doesn't seem to make sense, but it does, because if you, even if you're selling less, if you stop buying from your suppliers, right, you stop importing, and those inventories start to drop. And why would a store care so much about that? When you are a, a, a retail establishment or a manufacturer, it doesn't matter. When you're sitting on inventory, you're losing money. You're better off with empty shelves in those sales than full shelves in those sales. That property you owe against 
kills you. It's it's exactly the same as let's say you were a retail pizza shop and you have um, ten stores. Five of them, though, you're not doing any business from, but you're still paying a lease price or a rent price on the storefront. You've got to get rid of the storefronts. You've got to reduce your inventory of stores, right, to compensate and balance with what you're still selling, right? That makes perfect sense. When it comes to product, it works the same way. You have to balance your inventory, right, your capacity to match your demand. This is why Walmart can sell things for 2% margin and still make billions of dollars. Because they become masters of this art of balancing supply and demand. They know exactly how to do it. And all the other retail establishments have begun to snap to it. They're specialists now. That that's the oh, that's their entire job. They go in, they run computer systems that help stores balance that equation. Alright. So what does China say? China says, oh, look, uh, they don't have uh, as much supply side anymore. They're going to buy less. And they already see the orders dropping. The factories are producing less. Okay? They've been pumping money into the country. We pumped our own money. It's not fixed the problem. Here's what they're saying to themselves. We keep giving these people money. It's not coming back anymore. Let's cut off the supply of money until they're ready to take our supply of consumer goods again. So China is now saying they're looking at not loaning and buying more U.S. debt. And that is bad. Because, again, we have this deficit, this $1.2 trillion deficit, and now we have less input, we have less loan, we have less spending power. So what it's going to cause is the need to print more money, which we've already done, trillions and trillions of dollars of it. You might want to listen to my podcast on the M3 money supply to understand how bad that really is. But, uh, you know, all I can tell you is just think if you were sitting around playing a Monopoly game, and the banker had the ability to reach out and grab an extra two or three games worth of money anytime he wanted, or pull the money out anytime he wanted, how much opportunity would you have to win? And how much could money be devalued? And how much could things be inflated? And the numbers are massive on both sides. Alright? That's exactly the situation that we're going into right now. We're going into what could become, I'm not saying it will, but what could become the greatest financial crisis we've ever seen. The problem is the public's been dumbed down to believe that it is the greatest financial crisis that we've ever seen. And what's the problem with that? That means you're not preparing for anything else. So this is it. This sucks. I can lose my job, but the way things are right now is pretty much the way things are going to be until it gets better. In other words, we've so run this thing into the ground with hype from the news that we've convinced the public that we're sitting on the bottom. Can't possibly get worse. It can't possibly go lower. Well, based on the one piece of information that I've given you today, the supply side economics and how they're tied in to the lending from China and how the Chinese incentive to keep loaning us money that they knew they might never get back was the money comes back through a different channel. The money comes back every time you go buy a cheap ass cooler at Walmart. That's where the money gets repaid. And then when they see that cut, they cut the other side of the supply line. 
because it doesn't make sense for them to put that money in there anymore. They're better off sitting on it in their own government. They're better off investing it in another nation. They're better off, frankly, trying to create another America for themselves while we try to solve our own problems. That spells bad news for the United States in 2009. That spells a crisis. And that takes us into the next presidential administration. And I'm not being political here, folks. I just want to lay down the reality of the type of people that are going to be running this country and how they view the crisis we're about to go into. One of the very first appointments that President-elect Obama made was that of a gentleman named Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel, I'm not going to tear apart politically. There's a lot I could say about the guy. Uh, he's a you know hardcore um, liberal Democrat. That's fine. Let it be whatever he wants to be. I want to focus on one statement. I've just told you part of what's creating a crisis for us. And it's going to continue to aggravate the existing crisis. So you know there's a crisis. Rahm Emanuel has been appointed to Obama's chief of staff position. And I think a lot of people have been led by Hollywood to believe that like, you're, when you're president, your chief of staff is like your administrative aide or something. You know, it's like some, some person that brings you coffee and, you know, they, a lot of times I've seen, uh, like, television shows where they have a chief of staff and it's some young girl and, you know, you know, it's like, like an admin. You know, that's not what a chief of staff is. If you think of the White House as a boardroom, corporate boardroom, then the president is just that. He's the president, and he's the chairman of the board. And when he pulls the cabinet together, who are the most powerful people in the land, that's how he acts. He sits at the head of the table, he makes the final call, and he'll fire any damn one of them he wants to. But he doesn't run everything. The board doesn't. He doesn't even directly oversee what the board's doing every day. He has bigger fish to fry as the face of the company, or in this case, the face of the country. The chief executive officer of the nation may be the president, but the chief executive officer of the cabinets of that boardroom is the secretary of state. I'm sorry, the chief of staff. The chief of staff is the president's right-hand man. He is his first lieutenant. He is his XO. Whatever term you need to understand this. He's the CEO of that board of directors. Now, the chairman, the president, can fire him anytime he wants. But he relies on him. He puts the guy that he most wants to help him make decisions in that position. And he gives him a lot of autonomy to make decisions on his own. What is Rahm Emanuel's view of a crisis? This is a quote. I may not get it perfect, but I'll give you a link so you can go look at it. Look it up and see that I'm not making this up. Rahm Emanuel said back in November, you never want to let a good crisis go to waste. Before you think I'm taking him out of contact, he continued. And what I mean by that is losing the opportunity to get something done that you would not have been able to get done before. So here we have one of the most liberal politicians in America taking one of the most powerful positions in the cabinet of the presidency, one of the most powerful positions in the nation, facing one of the greatest crises in history. His view of crisis is that it's an opportunity to get things done. And of course, when a politician gets things done, that means to do things as the government and to put plans and programs and restraints and restrictions and to spend money. Politicians don't want your money so they can keep it 
Alright? All of them are wealthy already. The ones at the top, they're all wealthy people. They don't want the money for themselves, per se. They want the money for programs because control to a politician is power. Control, size, scope, programs. That's currency for a politician. That's why they work so well with the big corrupt business people who want the money. Because they're willing to spend the money and let it go into the business sector so that they can have the control. And in the end, what they're looking for is a system where the people's needs are met by the government and the money goes to the wealthy and the power goes to the elite. That's that's not conspiracy stuff, folks. Just look at it. And I'm not saying this is a Barack Obama thing. This is a political thing. I've said it right now. When you look at every major initiative that Barack Obama is trying to put forward, George Bush is cheerleading it along. These guys agree about everything now that the election's over. And the Democrat Congress and the Republican Congress have done the same stuff. Nothing has changed. Nothing's going to change. This is the situation that we're entering into. This is the thing that you have to dissect, that you have to understand, you have to grasp. That we are now entering into a phase where the government is viewing financial crisis as a solution to their problem of how do they take away more control from the populace put more control in the hands of themselves and create their social programs and create more dependence. And the greatest crisis out there is just waiting to be stuck with a stick and made worse. So you have to ask yourself, does the government really incentivize to solve this problem right now? Or is the government really incentivized right now to make the problem a little bit worse? And if they do, could it get out of their control? How bad could it really get? So I've said, I don't think this is the big crisis that could send society down a spiral into nothingness. But it sure could be if it is agitated. And one of the things that might agitate it is very powerful people that view our crisis as their opportunity. And that's from the man's own mouth. So don't make this partisan witch hunting or anything. If you're a Democrat, fine. Be a Democrat. But judge your Democratic people the same way you would judge a Republican or a Libertarian or an Independent. By what they say and what they do. And judge this guy by what he said. Your misery is his opportunity. His words, not mine. Moving on from there, what else is going on? Well, I was huge on telling you. This bailing out the auto workers is stupid. Don't do it. It's not going to fix the problem. It's going to make the problem worse. The problem is that the the system that the U.S. automakers are in doesn't work anymore. The way that they're hamstrung with the unions. There's, there's, you know, you can't just crap on the union guy. I stuck up for the union guy. I told you that a starting worker doesn't make this big number that you're hearing. But a lot of the workers in there don't make the number you're hearing. It's the money that keeps going to them when they're laid off. It's the huge health benefit packages that are just way too high. When you're building cars that sell for $20,000, for an employer to carry that burden alone. And these Cadillac plans that these guys have, and I wish everybody could have a Cadillac plan, I really do. But you can't. Sorry. And what I told you was, that if we bail these guys out, they're still going to end up 
moving their operations into foreign countries and selling off pieces of themselves to foreign ownership. And once the foreign ownership has it, it just goes, you know what, we're not going to build those things in Detroit anymore. We're going to build them in our plant in Tennessee or Texas or Louisiana without unions. And we don't have to because we're not them. Well, today, Chrysler has announced that it's selling off a brand to foreign ownership. And this one angers me. Because it's a brand that I really wish Chrysler... And I drive a Dodge truck, folks. Alright, and I love my Dodge truck. And if I ever have to buy another truck, I'd probably buy another Dodge unless things really change. And I've been a very loyal customer of Dodge, so I'm not bashing Chrysler either as a company. They should have never bought Jeep. Jeep is a piece of America. You can't get more American than a Jeep. There's nothing like a Jeep anywhere in the world. Either the Cherokees, which honestly folks, I had a, I think it was a 2002 Jeep Cherokee. Or I had a 90, 98 Jeep Cherokee is what it was. And, you know, it was one of the plain Jane ones, straight six, sport motor. And a, and a buddy of mine that lived across the street from me had a 1960-something, you know, Jeep Wagoneer. And he brought his over and he opened the hood and we looked at him and they were almost the same. Forty years of separation, they were almost the same vehicle still. One of the most dependable, reliable, and, and the, you know, the Wranglers or CJs or whatever you want to call them, depending on what area you're talking about, the cheap Jeeps, nothing, nothing in the world is like a Jeep. Chrysler's selling the Jeep brand, and I don't really understand this exactly how this works out yet, but to Renault, which is a French company, and Nissan, which is a Japanese company. So apparently both of these companies are getting shares, or it's part of a larger merger, because I don't understand how you sell a brand to two different companies, but that's what's going on here. So your Jeep is becoming a Japanese-French car. How do you feel about that? And we just gave these guys billions of dollars to save American jobs and keep the union workers strong. And they take one of the most iconic brands on the planet and they sell it to foreign ownership not 30 days after they got their billions of dollars. Now look, I think there's a lot of redundancy in the auto-making world. Do we need four cars under Buick, Pontiac, Chevy, etc., that are all actually the same car? No. But Jeep? Jeep doesn't make... You know, there's not another car that's actually a Wrangler or a Cherokee. Jeep is its own brand. Jeep has its own value. And in our community, in the survivalist community, Jeep has tremendous value. It's something that I believe is a cherished American institution. And in spite of this money that was supposed to save us from, oh my God, what if the big three go down? Still being sold to the French and the Japanese. This is the economy that we're coming into. This is why you have to be aware. This is why you have to prepare. What else is going on? Want some good news? Mortgages are up. More mortgages have been approved in the last month than have been in months and months and months. Mortgage market's booming. Bad side of it, nobody's buying houses. Well, wait a minute, how the hell are mortgages going up if nobody's buying? People are refinancing. See, the banks have said, you know what, we're not getting anything out of new loans. 
the interest rates have been pushed down abysmal levels. But, you know, got to do something with the money. And mortgages are still our best rate of return that we can get, at least right now. The bond market's dead. The T-bill market's dead. You know, it costs us more to get the money than we can make in either one of those markets. Investment banking is over. Nobody wants to even be an investment bank anymore. The economy sucks. We need to mortgage. Well, the safest place to issue mortgages is to people that have been through the beginning of this thing and are still paying their bills on time. So there's more money in refinancing old debt and buying old debt than there is in creating new debt. And since the interest rates are low, and there's a lot of people sitting out there with six and a half, seven and a quarter percent interest rates right now, and you can get a loan for 5.15%, there's plenty of people refinancing. So all that's happening is the debt's being moved out, and the bank's profit on that debt is being eroded. Now, you might not be real sympathetic to the banks right now. I'm not either, but they sure as hell employ a lot of people. And when these banks erode their own profits... You have to ask why they're doing it. Well, they're, they're looking ahead. Again, these guys are astute with numbers, just like our Chinese friends. And they're forecasting a continued down economy. And they're safeguarding the assets that they have left. And what they're going to start doing is laying off more and more people. You're going to see Citigroup laying off a bunch of people in the next 90 days. I will I will lay action with you on that one. Anybody wants to take that? I've thrown out bets before. I would have lost, folks. Citigroup will announce a major layoff in the thousands in the next 90 days. But he wants that bet, bring it on. All right. So these are all the things that are going on. Even when you see good news, it still looks bad. What else is going on? What else out there tells us the truth about what's underlying from the powers that be that know? How about this? President Barack Obama who was lauded practically as the savior, who wasn't elected, he was practically coronated as the new prince of the United States. And Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and all of the powerful Democrats in Congress and the Senate talked about this guy like he walked on water. He got the ringing endorsement of just about every Democratic governor in the nation before he had completely put away Hillary Clinton. They decided this was the horse they were going to bet on. This is the goodwill that they wanted. There was an alliance and a coalition behind hope and change like nothing we've ever seen unify a party before. And guess what? The man's not even been inaugurated yet. George Bush is still, whether you like it or not, President of the United States. And all of his buddies in Congress, Barack Obama's buddies in Congress, are starting to turn on him already. They're saying things like, George Bush treated us like employees. We're not going to take that from Barack Obama. Alright? You know? And I'll give you a link to this article about statements being made by people like Pelosi, Reed, Chuck Schumer, alright? Some of the very people, Marty Frank, people that created this mortgage crisis and then blamed somebody else when it came to a head. Marty Frank is more responsible for the mortgage crisis than any other person in government. And he's the one with people in hearings making a big deal out of it and acting as though he had nothing to do with it. Barney Frank is the most culpable government person out there for the mortgage crisis. 
Absolutely. Make a case for it. And he's, but he's comfortable. Here's the thing. He's like, it's like, you know, people used to call Bill Clinton Slick Willie. All these people are slick. He's got these people, CEOs of these companies in front of, in front of the Senate, in front of the House, grilling them, placing all the blame on them. What I told you before the election was that Barack Obama would win, the Democrats would have a commanding control of the House and the Senate. All these wonderful things, free health care, the you know, walking on water, all of it that was promised was undeliverable. And that the people that supported Barack Obama that had no idea why they supported him, as soon as he took over and as soon as the Democrats controlled everything, those people would turn on him and turn on him quickly. They will. You know what? Harry Reid knows it. Nancy Pelosi knows it. They, Barney Frank knows it. Chris Dodd knows it. They all know the jig is up now. They now have complete control. Senate, Congress, Executive Branch with the Presidency control everything. So they get all the blame. Everything that happens going forward, you can only blame Bush for so much at this point now. The decisions going forward, they all rest with you. They know the populace will turn on this president who promised all these wonderful things, who won't give them to you, not because he doesn't want to, because he can't. Because no one can. Because it's, it, it's, like, it's like trying to do this with magic. It can't be done. It won't be done. It's not going to be done. So they are already pre-positioning themselves. To say, you know, we thought this Barack Obama guy was one of us. He was supposed to bring hope and change. We're trying to get simple things done. Like immediately closing Guantanamo Bay. He campaigned on that. Why aren't we doing it? Because they said, hey, Barack, take a look at these guys. What do we do with them? He doesn't know. All right, he's already backed off of that. He's backing off of the immediate universal health care. He's trying to push for his tax cuts for the middle class, but he's backing off initially on his tax raises for the wealthy. All these things he said he was going to do just physically cannot be done. Congress and the Senate are the ones that would actually do them. All he does is sign the freaking bill. So now the blame game begins. And now that there is no Bush to bash. We have to put the onus on the president, which is exactly what the Congress, the Senate did to Bill Clinton. It didn't work. Clinton was slicker than them. And I'm not admiring, I'm just telling you the reality. Clinton was slicker. His spin was better. And midterm elections turned the Congress and the Senate over to the Republicans. And people looked at it as a big defeat for Clinton. It was a big victory for Clinton. Because it didn't cost him when his own party tried to push him into places he didn't want to go. He did a better job of maneuvering than they did. That's what we're fixing to go into here with Obama. And it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out and how a chief of staff sits there along the way helping him and looks for how to turn these crises into opportunities to get things done now that you would not have been able to get done before. Very interesting. And it's worth paying attention to, folks. It really is. Because it makes you realize, I really don't need to spend that dollar today. I really don't need to risk this right now. It really is important to save a little bit more money, to put a little bit more food away, to do whatever it is you're doing in your preps. The last thing, 
kind of looking at this huge stimulus, the $750 billion that Obama and the Dems are talking about pouring into the economy. By the way, some of the Democrat resistance is already talking about, yeah, we're not real hip on this stimulus thing anymore. Uh, yeah, I know we said we were, but now that we're actually going to have to do it and we don't know where to get the money from, um, you know, the people are going to be pissed about this. Maybe we don't need to do it. We have to, you know, especially the House, some of us have to get reelected in two years. This is going to be a terrible economy. We're going to get blamed for spending all this money and not working. And that's resulting in the powers that be, the informed, looking at what industries should do well because of this stimulus, and do we believe it or not? Well, <laughs> there is a company called Caterpillar. All right? One of the biggest manufacturers of construction equipment in the world. And if they're going to build billions of dollars worth of new roads and bridges and buildings, you would think that new equipment purchases should go up and that Caterpillar stock should rise. So right now, the informed, at least in the you know foreseeable future, are shorting sh- shares of Caterpillar. That means that there, there's money betting that the stock will go down. Now, there's two ways to look at this. One is they think it's actually going to fail. Two, they think it's going to take a while for this to kick in. They're trying to short it to drive the price down. Once they drive the price down, they're going to buy the hell out of it and wait for the upside. We don't know, but it's something also to keep an eye on. My only point today, folks, is don't go to sleep on this economic stuff. Just like I talked about yesterday with the the pandemic and the flu, and, you know, it was all in the news, and it was all in the news, and then people got bored of it, so we started talking about something else. It didn't go away. It hasn't gotten any better. And some of the most powerful people in the world right now are viewing it as an opportunity to get you to let them do things that you wouldn't have let them do before. Stay informed. Continue to prepare. Continue to prep. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream. It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent